Hello, my name is Rob Edwards and this is my improbably late fifth podcast. Yes, yes, I know, it's been quite a while, hasn't it? Over a year. How are you doing? How have you been? How's it going? Um, I've not been abducted by aliens. I've not been working secretly for the uh, Russian Mafia for the last year and a bit. Um, in fact, if anything, the reason why I've been so quiet on my podcasting front is even stranger than that. But I'm back. I'm back today with um, a special edition of my podcast. Going to do something a little bit different for you this time. Uh, and we're going to do the entire story in one go for you. Um, it's a big podcast. It's an hour long. Uh, and it's uh, the first draft of a story I call The Lords of Negative Space. We'll chat more on the other side. Enjoy. The Lords of Negative Space In the time before, in a world less known, they were. In the wilds where humans rightly feared to venture, they moved. In the darkest heart of every forest, in the misty unknown of every moor and valley, on the mysterious slopes of every mountain, and in the endless night of every cave, they played. They were beautiful and terrible, cunning and playful. Capricious, yet powerful. They existed. Creatures born of thought and superstition, they existed not as a stone or tree does, solid and heavy in the world, but in the way that love does, overwhelming and true and so very painful. They were the unknown and unknowable, creatures defined by a lack of definition. And so we named them. Fay. She, ogre, fairy, goblin, tales were told around the fire in the late dark of the night, and we knew to fear those places they lived, and the creatures who lived there. And so they grew in power, for they were beings of imagination. And yet, even as their power grew, they found themselves constrained. The wilds became known. This valley became farmland, this hilltop a village, this forest the king's hunting ground. This untamed land was threaded with tracks, with roads, with railways, and every house, every field, every map and photograph, every pylon and GPS signal, each and every one cut away at their power. There are no fairies at the bottom of your garden. But... In that space, the space where you are not sure if it is your garden or your neighbour's, that wild hedge that you both suspect might belong to someone else, in that space, defined by its lack of definition, that may be another matter. In the cluttered, dusty corner, the bit of unclaimed scrub, in the space formed by two buildings not quite meeting, they still are. They are the lords of negative space, and they are angry. In a place we named London, there stands a hospital. How long it has stood there is a difficult thing to say, as it is a hospital built upon a hospital, built in turn around a hospital. Some of it is very new and gleaming white, while some is older, creating offices that were once tiny, cramped wards, each with their own fireplace long since bricked up. In the basement of this hospital, in one of its basements, there is a corridor. Despite being a basement corridor, it has a window, and this window looks out onto a corner where the backs of three hospital buildings collide. On a bright day, some of the more adventurous sunlight can find its way to this forgotten corner, and when it does, it illuminates three walls of different styles and colour. One wall, the oldest, is a crumbling façade of stone, riddled with moss that gives it a green, wet look. Jutting through it is a slightly newer red brick corner, intricately styled, almost baroque. That connects in turn to the newest wall, plain brick, once painted white but now scabby and peeling. A disused fire escape of black iron is hanging from it, leading nowhere from nowhere. That same pioneering sunlight picks out tiny motes floating in the air above a rubbish-strewn ground. They twist and move in the brief puffs of wind, 
brownian motion seeming almost alive and dancing. The dance has an audience of one, a young woman known to her friends as Sarah, although in point of fact her name is Gertrude Constance Zara Eugenia Fletcher. This is one of the many things she does not forgive her parents for. She stops by the window often as she goes about her business. She admires that somehow, despite the accidental nature of this place, it manages to be strangely... not quite beautiful. Interesting. Nobody had ever designed this place. It was certainly never intended to be studied and admired. And yet the angles of the walls, the pattern in the moss, the stark twisted shadows cast by the fire escape, combine into an asymmetric... And that is where her words run out. She does love this space, though. It's a constant source of frustration that for some reason her camera phone refuses to take a picture of it. She's trying again now, trying to capture the dance in stillness. But though the camera was working five minutes ago, for some reason, no matter how she presses the button, nothing happens. She squints at the phone, notices that it has become a little dusty, and while she can't think why that would make a difference, she nevertheless rubs it against her jeans to clean it off. There is a bright flash, and she has captured another picture of her own feet. This sort of thing has happened before, and she knows it is her cue to move on. She pockets her phone and continues along the corridor, not noticing that the dusk is climbing down the leg of her jeans and scurrying back to a crack in the wall. It is raining in the Conclave Eternal. The rain is fine and sharp. It falls not in great scything sheets, but in gusts and patches. The walls of the place are slick with it. It coats the sinuous marble columns, making them glisten greenly. It slithers off the leaves of the ancient willows and collects in pools in the moss-covered floor. The peoples of the Conclave deal with the rain in their own ways, as diverse as the people themselves. The moon singers incorporate the rain into the tally of their woes. The leaf folk revere it, turning their faces upwards. The souls of the midnight bargain offer gigantic sheltering fronds to passers-by, for only the smallest of considerations. And so it goes. Some have simply decided that the rain does not apply to them, and remain dry and warm amidst the downpour. One such is the prince of the conclave, a being older than time, but younger than a breath. He sits atop a throne crafted of silk and skulls, one leg hooked casually over the armrest. He is a vision of languor and disinterest. He moves his head slowly to watch one figure detach itself from the throng and approach the steps to his throne. A circle of hush spreads outwards as all pause to look at the creature who dares to stand on the lowest step of the prince's domain. It is, perhaps, the moment to describe Caldicus Mott, for his importance to the tale can hardly be denied. To our eyes he would look almost human, a short man, perhaps, and while not fat as such, there is a roundness to his frame that sets him apart from his more elegant brethren. His silvery hair is in disarray, and of such uneven lengths that it appears he was called away urgently in the middle of his last three haircuts. His customary cheery smile flashes in a face framed by extravagant sideburns. His clothing is equally remarkable. While there is no dress code to the conclave, Colicus's attire could hardly be deemed appropriate, for while he is not the only one dressed in mismatched and often patched clothing, he is the only one whose clothes were not a choice, not a message to the others of the conclave. No, Colicus's clothes are mismatched because he paid them no mind. His long green coat sports patches of red and purple. A half-eaten sandwich pokes out from a pocket. His trousers have one red leg and one blue, the latter patched in yellow, the former in a colour we have no name for. He wears only one glove on his left hand, and it was weaved of finest spider silk. If intact, it would have been a treasure indeed, but the thumb and middle finger missing, it simply looks untidy. Only two items of Colicus's attire show any sign of care. His boots, while well-worn and sturdy, are polished and intact, and the sword on his belt is pristine, even if it hangs so low that he's in constant danger of tripping on it. Colicus Mott is a remarkable creature, as will soon become clear. 
Those in the crowd who recognise Mott, and there aren't many, move quickly and quietly to a safer distance, although ensure that they have a good view. Little man seems suddenly aware that he's made himself the centre of attention. His smile falters, swoops downwards to a frown, before rising phoenix-like to set his face alight. He spots someone he knows in the crowd, waves, and is not in the least dismayed when that person ducks back into anonymity. Colicus bobs a series of bows before turning his gaze upwards to the prince. The little man coughs, <clears throat> clears his throat, and says, My liege, I have a plan to deal with the Sarah human. A ripple of excitement passes through the crowd. That anybody should address the prince directly is unheard of. To do so in direct speech and in a human language, no less, unthinkable. The reaction by the crowd to such an outrage runs a gamut of surprise and dismay. Gasps and wails, some startled barks of anger. One of the children of Chameleon turns magenta, then lime, then a chessboard of both before fainting dead away. Seventeen small rabbits and an outraged footstool materialise unbidden. But after the initial hubbub has died away, all eyes turn to the prince. He blinks, slowly, and the rain stops. He leans forward, the merest fraction, lifts one fingertip just a little. Encouraged, Caldicus begins to outline his plan. The girl called Sarah by her friend is pushing a trolley along the corridor. The trolley is old and temperamental, its wheels drift left when they don't lock up completely. The catch on the cover sticks, and sometimes she has to hit it, just so, to make it release. The trolley is tired and grey, older than Sarah herself, she suspects, and it squeaks. Moving medical records around a hospital, even a noted London hospital, is not how she would choose to spend her time if she could. She tells herself the task is important. It is. Without the thoughts and judgments captured in the ink and paper that she carries, the miracle of modern health care would stumble, fail more often. While she does not herself heal the sick, she is part of a long chain of events that makes people better. Indirectly, she and her dilapidated trolley contribute to the happiness and well-being of thousands. Still, it is a truly Sisyphean task. Find the notes, load the trolley, deliver them. Repeat. Each clinic, each day, each week. Finding the notes should be a simple task in theory if everybody who moved the notes simply tracked where they'd put them. Instead, mundane though the task is, it is a never-ending struggle, chasing, questioning, ticking off lists. She asks the same questions of the same offenders yesterday, as today, and will again tomorrow. Loading the trolley is her greatest satisfaction of the day, each folder in its place neatly lined or correct, every one of them precisely, unequivocally in the place ordained for it. She is always sorry when it's time to move the trolley, for she knows that once more the records will leave her control and find their way to cupboards and lockers, offices and drawers, briefcases and the boots of consultants' cars. The wheels of the trolley stop moving. The trolley stops moving. Sarah, lost in thought, does not. Instead, she clatters into her charge, catches herself on a sharp edge, stumbles, tumbles, the trolley teeters, hanging improbably balanced on two wheels for a long moment, before crashing sideways. With a bang, the cover snaps open, and her precious cargo spills out, a cascade of jargon flooding the corridor. Sarah sits, winded and dumbfounded, a dull pain in her hip from the fall. Her notes, she thinks. All her work, her organisation. But no, this is the job, this is her time. This is why she has lists, all neatly ticked with different colour biros. This is her responsibility. She leaves herself upwards and begins to restock the trolley, folder by folder, returning each one to its place. She finds the process soothing, and if she's going to be five minutes late to clinic, she will deliver the notes in order and in place. She clicks her biro to the green pen, reserved for emergencies just like this, and begins a new line of ticks. She has retrieved the last of the folders from the floor, slots it neatly back into the righted trolley, ticks it, scans her list, frowns. One set of notes has no green tick. One set of notes that was on her trolley before is no longer there. She considers for a moment. Perhaps she put it back 
without ticking it off. It doesn't sound like her, but with the corridor empty, it's the only possible choice. She counts folder spines, all the same. One for each tick. No more, no fewer. She feels uneasy. Had she not found them all before she set out? Had she, in fact, set off with an unfilled trolley after all? And then her gaze flicks out of the window, to the strange little space that only she pays any mind to. And there, resting on the mossy ground, in amongst discarded wrappers and cans, improbably, impossibly, sits one medical record folder. She takes a step to the window, one hand to the glass, tries to make out the name or the number on the cover. Is it her missing folder? She steps back and looks at the wall. There is a crack running from the windowsill to the floor, but it's little more than a hairline, vertical and jagged. Nothing could slip through there, not even one sheet of paper, and certainly not a folder. She feels around the floor, no breaks or gaps. That folder cannot be her missing one. But even if it isn't, she can't leave a set of notes there. Some day, someone will need them. She looks at the window again. For the first time, really. She's looked through it on many occasions, but never at it. The frame holds two panes of glass, each a little more than two feet wide. It's designed to open once, in an age perhaps a little less security conscious. One half of the window meant to swing outwards, but clearly no nobody's opened it in a very long time. The cracks are painted over, the hinges unoiled. Sarah takes off the latch and gives it a tentative push. The window moves, not a fraction. She presses her shoulder against the window and applies a little pressure. The window does not move. Sarah studies the thick paint jamming up the frame. She reaches an arm out to fish the keys from her bag on the trolley. She carves a groove in the paint with her car keys, a movement more of hope than engineering. She slings her bag around her neck and applies her shoulder to the window once more. This time she does not let up, even when it feels that the glass will surely break before the window opens. She applies all her weight against it, and suddenly... <laughs> the window doesn't move. Defeated, Sarah sits on her windowsill, gasping from the effort. Perhaps she'll simply have to call the States to get them to fetch the folder for her. There must be a way to get in there, after all, or how did the notes get there? She leans back, and does not hear the tiny tinkle of laughter as the window pops open, and she tumbles backwards through it. The war that rages between the fairy and the human species is subtle and abstract, but bloody all the same. It has rarely been a battle of land or resources, but for minds, imagination, and the conceptual. Victories and defeats have not always been easy to tell apart, and the champions on both sides of the conflict have been largely misunderstood. The great battle prayer of the humans, for example, was used in recent generations to inflict suffering on our own young. Its true nature had been long forgotten, and people had come to view it merely as a geometry textbook. Though Euclid's true purpose for collecting the elements is lost to time, it was nevertheless one of the first great victories against the Fae. Its attempt to impose order onto the way we shape our world, and to give us a way to think, was anathema to the fairy. That the battle prayers fall out of favour in our modern schools may simply be due to changes in the way we educate our young, but may, in fact, be the direct result of a counter-strike by the Fae. Whichever is true, it remains the case that the girl called Sarah would do well to summon its verses to mind as she stands and takes a step towards her missing folder. Since she does not, she is lost long before she realised it. Sarah is a little surprised to find the folder still out of reach. She takes another step, and another. Surely the space she'd seen through her window was small enough to cross in three steps, and yet the notes sit on the moss ahead, still just a little out of reach. She takes a fourth step. The folder does seem closer now, but still out of reach. She's slightly unnerved now, confused. The world is not behaving as it should. She almost turns to look back at over her shoulder to see the window back to her world close at hand. But somehow she dare not, as a small part of her mind, the part that remembers the dangers her ancestors faced, already knows it is too late. 
She shakes her head against the sudden vertigo and begins to jog forwards towards her folder. Each step seems to halve the distance to her goal, and yet half the distance still remains. The ground is uneven, rolls by under her feet. Her breath comes fast now. She breaks into a full run, bag bouncing against her back. The folder never seems to move, but she never quite reaches it. As she approaches the forest edge, she slows, stops. Her shoulders ache from the effort of not looking back. She knows. She knows. She knows that there is no forest beyond her window. She knows that the rolling hills she has crossed are not there. She knows that behind her, her window is gone. Firmly, resolutely, Sarah looks. And there is her wall. There is her window. She can see her corridor, her trolley, the rest of her notes. She's not lost at all. The way back to her world is there, just a little out of reach. Caldicus Mott sits on his tree branch and watches the girl run back and forth for a while. She seems to have forgotten why she entered the wild now, so while she runs herself out, he reaches out his one-gloved hand and the fold that Sarah was chasing falls neatly into it. Caldicus knows that his study of the human ways is unusual among his people. But though it sets him apart, he cannot help but be fascinated. That the strange creatures would allow their thoughts to be captured on sheets of wood pulp is remarkable, and Caldicus prides himself on having learned the magic of interpreting these markings. From his pocket he takes a pair of spectacles that he fashioned himself. One lens is a chip of brown glass, the other a drop of rain. He has bound them in wire, stretched thin. He balances the spectacles on the end of his nose, somewhat unevenly and looks through them, and understands. Caldicus does not simply read what is on the page in the notes. He understands the thoughts behind them. That's confidential, you know. You shouldn't read that. He jumps in surprise, notes flying from his hand, spectacles from his nose. Caldicus reaches out one hand to steady himself on the branch, and the other to catch his precious spectacles. The folder flutters out of the tree and lands neatly in Sarah's outstretched hands. Thank you, she says by reflex. She closes the folder and stuffs it into her shoulder bag. The strangely dressed little man, meanwhile, has scurried up the tree to a higher branch and is peering out at her from behind the trunk. He looks to be smiling, but it's a nervous smile. If he is afraid, she remains terrified. She has jogged and run and walked in every direction and never seemed to make any progress. She couldn't get back to her window. She couldn't reach any of the other walls. She can see them now in the distance, vast cliff faces, one green, one red, one white, rising straight up into the clouds. The base of the three walls seem miles away. The fourth wall, her wall, with her window and her world, her wall seems just over her shoulder, always almost home, but still not able to reach it. It seems to grow closer when she doesn't look. She tells herself that if she doesn't look for long enough, perhaps it will grow too brave and come too close, and she can spin and catch it off guard. She has already toppled over twice, trying to sneak up on her wall. And in all the time she's been here, this little man in the oddly coloured clothes, this little man sitting in a tree smiling at her, this little man is the only other soul she has met. Hello, she says. Do you speak English? little man nods so vigorously. For a moment he loses his grip on the tree. He flails wildly before catching himself. Relief chases panic from his face. He beams at her and nods once more, carefully. Can you help me? I'm trying to get home, she says. Gestures behind her, careful not to look. Uh, my name is Sarah. Please, I, I'm trying to get home. Sarah gasps as the little man launches himself backwards off the tree, then once more as he flips himself mid-air to land lightly on his well-worn boots. Caldicus Mott, he says, and gives a quick bow. At your service. A uh, pleasure to meet you, Mr. Mott, says Sarah, feeling a need for formality that she would not normally use. Can you tell me how to get home, please? For a flicker of a moment, Mott frowns, his mouth tugging downwards, all contrite and dismay. But even before he begins to talk, the smile has blossomed once more. No, indeed, I beg your forgiveness, but having tumbled into the wild, only the Prince of the Conclave may give you leave to go.
Oh. Sarah fails to keep the disappointment from her voice. Well, can I ask him, then? Mott turns on his heel and scampers deeper into the forest. Follow me, he calls. There are some things you should know before you meet him. It is almost impossible to give a true list of rules for dealing with the fairy. Partly, of course, this is because there is no such thing as a fairy. They are as wild and changeable as Wednesdays. No two Wednesdays are quite the same, and yet each shares a certain Wednesday-like quality. So it is with the fae. Though they are all the same, they are also all completely different. If you accept food from some, you are lost in time for a century. If you reject the offer of food from others, it is a grievous and deadly insult. That will be answered with teeth and fangs. The problem is exacerbated by a tendency to capriciousness and deceit. Though a rule may be true on one encounter with a fae, it does not mean that the rule will remain enforced throughout your dealings with them. And one can never quite believe the rules a fairy tells you, except, of course, when one can. The final layer of complexity is that the fae have rules for and about things that would never occur to us as needing rules. Rules for entering houses, rules for jumping puddles, rules for passing by trees. And yet, there are rules to be followed, if only they can be divined in time, and the fairy are bound by their rules, more so than we humans are. To prosper, or indeed survive, dealings with the fae, one must simply be cunning, careful, and adaptable. Encounters with the fae rarely end well. Sarah watches as the strange little man hops back and forth over a puddle again. Her head is spinning with all of Mott's advice. Much of it is nonsense, most of it is contradictory, and what little she can grasp seems irrelevant. So, if I feel a cough coming on, I must turn away from him and cover my mouth with my left hand while holding my right stretched out as far as I can, she asks. Oh yes, says Coldicus Mott, and hops backwards across the puddle once more. And don't forget to waggle your fingers. Like this, Sarah stretches out her right hand, giving Mott a wave with her fingertips. The fairy lands in the puddle with a hefty splash. Oh, my word, no. A terrible insult. Terrible. It is the fingers of your left hand that you must waggle. <laughs> now look what you've made me do. I shall have to start over. Do you think, just this once, you could walk around the puddle? You said we had a long way to go yet, and I need to get home. This time, Mott does not reply, concentrating on his hops and jumps. Sarah is reasonably convinced that some of the instructions the little man has given her are intended simply to make her look foolish, pranks to play on a foreigner. But she has no way to know which are jokes at her expense, and which truly could affect her chances of getting home. I shall follow them all, she decides. Mott finishes his dance and gestured them onwards. It is not far now, though I should warn you, it has rained recently. There are many puddles yet to be crossed. It is dark and quiet in the Conclave Eternal. The business of the Conclave continues unabated, but the Prince has decreed that all must be shadow and stone for the arrival of the girl called Sarah. The Mournsingers conduct themselves as a whisper through the leaves above. The stalwarts of the second summer become the dappling of green light upon the wall, and the infinite children have carved themselves into a twisting pattern on the marble columns. Though she does not know it, as the girl called Sarah follows Caldicus Mott into the Enders Hall, the debate about her presence and Mott's plan continues to rage all around her. It's beautiful, Sarah says in a whisper. Her words are swallowed by the vast room, devoured by the darkness that lingers between the pillars and trees. She marvels at the seemingly countless statues arranged in shadow all around her. Creatures fantastic and unimaginable, disturbingly beautiful yet fascinatingly terrible. She steps forwards into a shard of green and golden light, standing in the warmth and quiet. A breath of wind moves the trees around her, and the mottling of the light flexes, amber and emerald. The whole space around her seems to dance, yet remains motionless. The place smells of a spring forest, lively and sharp. No, autumn, wet leaves and warm bare earth. No, honey, baking bread, 
the sea, each scent vital and alive long enough for her to delight in it, before changing so subtly, yet so markedly, to the next. There is something like the air of a cathedral to the place. Though her words do not seem to travel, she cannot bring herself to raise her voice. Mr. Mott, it is astonishing. Thank you for showing me this place. Mott puffs out his chest, preening at her praise. You are most welcome, most welcome indeed. The prince is just ahead, girl Sarah, but I am afraid you will have to leave your wall behind. Pardon? Your wall, Mott gestures vaguely behind her. It cannot enter this place, and you cannot enter if it is still with you. Oh. Sarah makes a sound of dismay. Though she has been unable to reach her wall, her window, her world, its presence just behind her has been a comfort of sorts. Still, Mott's words ring true. A place like the conclave is no place for her dusty brick wall. I don't know how, Mr. Mott. Mott tutted. Just let it go. You are the thing keeping it here. Just let it be where it should be, so that you can truly be here. Sarah nods, slowly, considering the little man's words. She is reluctant. To let go of the thing she is trying to reach feels counterintuitive. A step, much more than a step, in fact, in the wrong direction. And yet, if only the prince can let her leave, and if she cannot reach the prince without letting go of her safety line... Sarah closes her eyes. Let's go. She feels like something is being pulled out of her, an unravelling thread passing away. She gasps, unrooted, and feels momentarily hollow, lost, lost in a way she has not felt since she came to this place. She feels a warm tear on her cheek. She knows she has made a mistake. Mott smiles at her, the same cheery smile, but fleetingly, as the light and shade plays across his face. For a moment, it is not so much a smile as it is the little man showing her his teeth. I, she says. Good, says Caldix Mott. Very good. Now you are ready to be brought before the prince. Dully, Sarah follows. The wonder she felt at the endless hall is now gone, as she picks her way through the statues, stepping over protruding tree roots, ducking beneath branches, she hardly sees them, ignores the myriad smells that assail her nostrils. She is afraid. She looks behind her, and the comfort of her wall is indeed absence. The one piece of the world she knows is no longer with her, and she realizes the rules of this world are different. The archway through which she entered the Endless Hall is gone too. Indeed, the wall the archway was in has vanished, just as her own wall has. Sarah twitches her gaze around. The hall stretches as far as she can see in every direction. No sign of a wall or window, no ways out, no hint of a direction to run. She could be in the middle of a forest, and yet the space somehow feels contained. She is bound, held... This is an indoor space, impossibly vast, and yet with no way out. She looks at her guide once more as he picks his way around the pools and statues, trees and pillars. He still looks ridiculous, still a creature of nonsense, but now she is not dazzled by his smile. She sees him anew, sees the sword at his hip, sees that he is leading deeper into this world. Yes, Sarah is afraid. Mr. Mott. Almost there, see? Mott points through the trees, and Sarah can indeed see something, a structure, a pyramid, twenty feet high. She can make out steps winding around the side of the pyramid, leading upwards, but the trees obscure the very top of the building. Is that the prince's throne, girl, Sarah? He is ready to judge you. Judge me? Judge if I'm allowed to go home? No human thing whispers the statue beside her, to judge if you and your family will live. Sarah tumbles backwards in surprise and horror, lands heavily but unharmed on the moss. She gasps as Colicus bounds over, his sword leaping to his hand, the tip of the blade catching at one of the statue's throats. My prince, Mott calls over his shoulder, 
This hollow brother breaks your decree of silence. By the laws established in the third telling of the Verhey, I demand he be punished. The moment of silence stretches out, Mott's sword not wavering an inch, and then in a burst of purple flames the statue, the hollow brother, vanishes. Did your prince just kill that man for talking? Sarah whispers, fighting terror, understanding quite how much danger she is in. Oh no, says Mott, far worse. The hollow brotherhood have been banished to the far reaches of the hall. It will be generations before they can reclaim this position in the conclave. The rules are not to be trifled with. Now stand, girl Sarah. Your judgment is at hand. She is far too scared to notice, but as Sarah stands and takes a few faltering steps towards the pyramid, the ground around her begins to stretch. The statues do not move, and the pyramid certainly changes position not one inch, and yet the space between them grows. The conclave eternal is uneasy. Most who favoured the ridiculous plan of Mott's saw him as a buffoon too enamoured with the human ways to be truly a threat. They saw a chance for some human baiting, a sport remembered but not played in decades. They saw the bumbling, badly clothed and fidgety Caldicus Mott, a fool with plans they did not understand, and so they assumed were doomed to failure. The Caldicus Mott who can banish one of their most favoured to the far reaches of the hall is not a buffoon. The Caldicus Mott who will tell the prince what must be done is a threat. The Caldicus Mott who has led this human into their midst may be about to change the game. Sarah stands on the first step of the prince's throne, staring up at him. The prince, for his part, does not seem to have noticed her. At first glance, the prince looks like a gangly young man, younger than Sarah even. But the more she looks, the more she sees the differences. Tall and thin, yes, but he sits across the arms of the chair with an almost liquid grace. There is nothing gangly or ungainly there. His face, while unlined and with a youthful complexion, somehow seems to radiate ages. The face itself is too angular to be quite human, and though not handsome, his appearance is compelling. Sarah wishes she could see his eyes, but they remain half-closed and steadfastly not quite facing away from her. The prince may seek to question you before passing judgment, Caldicus Mott says from behind her, but it is unlikely. He rarely speaks to his own people. He will not speak to you. Sarah feels a tight lump in her throat, swallows sharply. She opens her mouth to speak the words of greeting Mott taught her. All of the little man's instructions bubble up behind them, but she is gripped with a sudden distrust of his help. She shakes her head to clear it. She looks at Mott, who nods encouragement, his teeth flashing. She decides, takes a breath, and throws herself up the stairs, taking the uneven steps two at a time in a frantic dash. The hall, even Mott, recoils for a moment. Sarah takes her chance. As she spirals upwards, she breathlessly calls up to the prince. Your Highness, she pants, I apologise for intruding into your land. It was not deliberate. There is a growing hubbub all around her, placeless noise, outrage and shock. Louder is a creaking, grinding sound. Sarah, too, too intent on the prince to notice, something grabs at her. She shrieks as she is lifted from her feet, held, squeezed by vines and branches, moving, growing as she struggles, binding her arms, her legs. I just want to go home, she gasps, as soft green shoots pull at her face. She is held firm suspended above the stairway, her eyes almost level with the prince. I just want to leave. My apologies, my prince, says Caldicus Mott, his voice coming from behind her, but close enough that he must have followed her up the stairs. She can't turn her head to see him. These humans have grown wild and presumptive in these later days. Though more evidence was hardly required, it is yet further proof of the threat they represent. What? she shouts. Sarah, the little man says, and there is something in his voice, some way he says her name, some power she does not understand. Sarah, be still. And she cannot speak.
or cry out, or struggle, she is helpless, friendless, alone and bound. The branches that hold her shake a little, and Caldicus comes into view, clambering up them towards her. He pauses as he grows level with her head, and somehow, while hanging upside down, contrives a bow to the prince of the conclave. The prince does not acknowledge him. Indeed, he still seems to have hardly noticed Sarah's approach, capture, or cries for help. Mott reaches in between the holding vines, fingers seeking, then finding Sarah's bag. He fishes out the patient's notes, then her list, all neatly ticked, and finally her pen. With a bounce, he somersaults over her head, landing neatly on the top step before the prince's throne. My prince, as promised, with these three relics of the human world, I can win this war. Twenty years from now, the human species will all be dead or dying. Let the call go out across the wild. Victory is at hand. The human world is a world of numbers. There is art and song and literature aplenty, of course, but even they are edged and held by numbers. The geometry of perspective, the tempo of a song, the chapter of a book, all neatly numbered and understood. We assign value to them, all with numbered pieces of paper, withdrawn from our numbered bank accounts using a card and a special number. We number our houses, our telephones, our buses. Games and sports are one when one side's numbers exceed the other's. Acts of creation and destruction, both, are numbered. This recipe needs 200 grams of flour. This earthquake killed 70 people. Even the passing of time is measured and quantified. Each second, minute, hour, day, week. How old are you? You are a number. That is not the way of the fairy. Though the Fae use numbers, they generally distrust them for anything more complex than counting. Their world is driven by words. Words have meaning and weight. The Fae can use words and names in ways that we can only call magic. They can create, destroy, and change with words in ways that we will never comprehend. But the same is true in reverse. The Fae do not understand numbers in the way that we do and cannot duplicate our engineering, our science, or our medicine. In the entire history of the conflict, there have been few on either side who have truly understood both worlds. The handful of humans who have ever mastered the ways of the Fae were called witches and sorcerers, and their existence and power have long since vanished into myth and fantasy. The Fae who understand numbers are viewed by their own people as strange, comical characters, rarely understood or included. For a fairy to have power over numbers and words would be a truly terrible thing. And so we must all fear Caldicus Mott. The girl called Sarah opens her eyes in darkness, tries to remember where she is, and for a moment her mind refuses her the memory. Mott had declared his victory and scampered off into the woods once more. When the woods had turned to follow him, Sarah had at last admitted defeat, and given up her conscious mind, no longer able to cope. She has been moved, or perhaps the world has moved around her. She is inside, but in a much smaller space than the conclave. She is half standing, half lying, still rigid and unmoving, propped against a grey stone wall. She can see little of her surroundings and so she listens, listens so that she can anticipate whatever terrible thing will next befall her. The girl called Sarah is forlorn. She hears a footstep, another, timid and cautious, a third. The prince of the conclave steps into view. He looks at her, and for the first time Sarah sees his eyes. They are not human eyes, no pupils, no iris, just hollow spaces in a shade of blue dark enough to be almost black. They flicker, shades changing as he studies her, his face expressionless, yet somehow still conveying a sense of great sadness and regret. 
The prince reaches out and touches her hair, two fingertips gathering a stray lock, smoothing it back behind her ear. Sarah feels queasy at such intimacy, but cannot move to speak or object. The prince steps back from her, seems to reach some decision. He slowly extends an arm backwards into shadow, his movements strangely precise and choreographed, his elbow and wrist twisting just so. Then he reverses the motion, and his hand is resting on the shoulder of a fae that Sarah does not recognise. The newcomer appears old, tufts of grey hair grow seemingly at random about a face carved from tree bark. He is clothed in a coat of leaves, which rustle musically as he gives a bow, stiff from age and formality. With a voice like the tide, he asks, How may the oaken word serve you, my prince? The prince sits, his throne appearing beneath him as he does. As he sinks back into it, he gestures towards Sarah. <sighs> yes, my prince, human child. I am known as Abenard, an adherent of the Oaken Word. What seems to be the problem? Sarah can do no more than blink at him. She flicks her eyes left and right, up and down, in an attempt to convey that everything is the problem. Abenard nods, scattering flecks of bark. Yes, I see. Well, this is thorny indeed. He unclips a twig from his belt and prods Sarah with it, stepping slowly around her until she cannot track him any longer. You've been bound by your name, girl. A powerful enchantment, and one not easily broken. If the fay who did it wishes you held so, I may not be able to free you. My prince, do I have permission to use this girl's name in your presence? Abenard pauses, and though Sarah sees no response from the prince, after a moment, Abenard says, You honour me with your faith. Girl, what was it that odious Mott called you? Ah, yes. Sarah's heart begins to swell with hope, as Abenard leans in and says, Girl, Sarah, be free. She strains, tries to move, hopes to be free again, but no, Mott's magic holds her still. Abenard sighs. It is no use, my prince. She has accepted Mott's definition of her name. I cannot now redefine it, or her. Not without weeks of work, and as I understand it, this human type cannot survive so long without food. You really should know better than to go giving your name to strangers, girl Sarah. She lets Abenard's lecture, too late by far, wash over her. Too tired, too desperate, too lost to hear the words. She can't process them, does not understand them. She clutches for something, anything to stabilise her, to bring this mad spiral of despair to a halt. She tries to cry, but cannot. She had begun the morning with such mundanity, the normal routine of her life, to end the day, her life perhaps, in a place she does not understand, bound by her own name, whatever that means. But... My name, she says, jaw cracking against some unseen pressure. She forces each word out, squeezing them through her teeth. My name is not Sarah. Gertrude Constance Zara Eugenia Fletcher falls, her limbs slack, suddenly free. Impossibly, the prince is there to catch her. He doesn't seem to have crossed the space between her and his throne. Well now, Abenard says, that is an interesting development. The Conclave Eternal is marching. At the head of the column runs Caldicus Mott, dancing from puddle to puddle, dashing from tree to tree, he gestures with Sarah's pen, composing and conducting a symphony of war. They reach the edge of the forest, and Caldicus calls a halt, letting the stragglers catch up. 
demanding his audience. While they wait, Caldecus Mott branches the pen aloft, then clicks it to the black biro. Mott hides a mocking smile at the gasps of wonder from the conclave at such a trivial action. He lets the questions and mutters rise behind him, then pulls open the medical notes he stole from Sarah. Humans measure their lives by numbers. One number indicates a person is well, another that they have an infection. Numbers here say that the human bound to these pages will live. Numbers there say that they will die. With a steady and malicious hand, Caldecus Mott changes the numbers. He changes the story, changes the meaning, changes the truth for the human described by these pages. The numbers will show sickness to be treated where the human is well, and health where sickness lurks. Any attempted cures for this human will fail, risking further illness and death. An inconvenience for this human, possibly life-threatening, but not enough to win a war by itself. More than human mischief is required for that. Now comes the fey magic. With a few carefully chosen words, Mott changes the definition of the record. Instead of merely describing disease, the brown folder becomes disease. If the errors that Mott has created are discovered and new tests conducted for the patient, the new numbers will be infected by the old. But more, each set of notes for other patients that come near Mott's enchantment will become infected themselves, and they in turn will infect others, shelf upon shelf upon shelf, thousands of infected notes. And every doctor, nurse or secretary who reads an infected record will become a carrier, infecting other systems, other hospitals. Mott has danced these numbers of the future, played with them and juggled them, all he has to do is place these notes back into Sarah's trolley, and in five years, human medicine will simply fail. People will die by the thousands, and then by the millions, and then by the billions. The fall of numbers, causing all these numbers to fall. Mott laughs at the thought. He is surrounded by true folk, who would not normally give him a second thought and the first, simply to mark him as odd. But they do not understand. Today they dance to his tune, a plan they could never envisage, never understand, never attempt, and that is why only he, Caldecus Mott, can win the war. But that's awful, says Sarah. Abenard shrugs, his coat of leaves chattering as he does. The true folk have long memories, and do not forget what your people have done to ours. Mott's plan is sound and fair after a fashion. Many will survive, the strong, the careful. Your people live before your modern medicine and will continue after it falls. There will just be a good deal fewer of you, that is all. It holds a mirror to what your people did to ours. Fair, Sarah says. We didn't do what you're talking about. We aren't at war with the fairy. Even if we ever were, it was centuries ago, generations. Nobody alive now believes in fairies, not really. This planet, it's monstrous. It will kill millions of innocent people. Abenard waves his stick at Sarah menacingly. Innocent? He shouts, incensed. Mott chose you because you are one of the people's soldiers. Do not think for a moment that you can deny it. Time after time you came to the window to our world with your... Camera. The prince is standing behind Abenard, rests one calming hand on the adherent's shoulder. Abenard shudders, setting his coat into a frenzy. He takes two deep, calming breaths, lowers his eyes from Sarah to the floor. My apologies, girl Sarah, I... This is not the way. Abenard says, calmer now. But can it truly be so that you do not know the nature of the crime you had, we had to prevent you from? Sarah blinks, not following, still fighting horror at Mott's plan. Crime? is the best she can muster. The prince steps forward from the shadows. No, the prince steps forwards and the shadows withdraw around him. 
We are the true folk, he says, in a voice rich, deep and warm. We walk in forever, changeable and unknowable. We are not one thing or another, but both and neither. Your perception of us is all in the moment. Your camera defines us, and so destroys us. Abenard is on his knees, shaking at the sound of the prince's voice. Sarah's legs feel weak, but she stands all the same. Your Highness, I, I didn't know. I'm sorry. The prince nods. You had to be stopped, and so you are. But now Calculus Mort must be stopped. Go. He gestures behind her, and Sarah turns to see a door, varnished and wooden, completely out of place in her stone cell. She opens her mouth to ask a question, but knows before she can that the prince and adherent both are gone. The peoples of the conclave are gathered. They stand before one wall of their realm, a wall with a certain window in it, and a certain crack, vertical and jagged, running from the floor up towards the window ledge. The conclave has decided that the crack is wide enough for three to pass through, though only one of them intends to make the crossing today. The fay called Caldicus Mott by his people stands on a rise before the assembled throng. Laughing at them chanting his name, he holds the diseased folder above his head with both hands, and a roar of anticipation, righteous anger and joy washes over him. They do not understand the plan, Mott knows, but they understand victory. Today, he shouts above the tumult, today we win! This causes a further explosion of noise, which lifts him momentarily up onto his toes. But this is the beginning, not an end. Too long have the humans had numbers on their side, well, no longer. After today, numbers will be ours. Let them think he was talking about the number of deaths if they wished. Mott was not here to destroy humans, but to bring the power of numbers to the Fey, to make them more like him. He knew the prince had worked it out, knew that the prince did not approve, but strong though the prince of the conclave was, he could not stop Caldicus Mott, would not stop the Fey who brought the true folk victory. Change was coming, and Mott was the spearhead. After today, neither human nor fairy would ever be quite the same. I go now. I walk into the future. The crowd's cries lift him and propel him down the tunnel between worlds. Sarah jiggles the door handle, presses his weight against it, and the door, complaining loudly, finally opens. She steps out of a forgotten cupboard in a forgotten corner of her hospital. She can see the familiar few from the window, but can't for the moment place herself in the building. Brown tiled floor, dark wood veneer, she's clearly not in the modern part of the hospital. It hardly matters. She looks quickly left and right, sees what looks like stairs down, and begins to run. Mott has to be stopped. It's harder to achieve in the human world, but Mott is well practised. With each step he takes towards Sarah's trolley, he grows, redefines himself, until he is standing over the trolley, looking for all the world like a short, round, strangely dressed human, holding a set of medical records. Sarah runs, stairs, corridors, people, all a blur. She starts in a world of browns, wood and tiling, steps into a world of white, gleaming chrome, bright lights, flickers into a world of off-green and antiseptic smells, battles through doors, leaps downstairs. The cover of the trolley sticks, won't open. Mott laughs at the sheer humanness. He strikes it gently with a fist, just so, and the lid pops open. Calculus Mort, be still! Two worlds take a breath. Sarah leans against the wall, breathless, heart thundering her chest. Mott is standing, frozen above her trolley, the diseased notes in one hand, her list in the other. He has already ticked the final missing set of notes, committing it to its place, but it is not there yet. The window is dim, seems to flex, as if the dust accumulated on the far side were pressing inwards, all trying to get to Sarah and Mott. She has won. Has she won? 
Caldecusmot turns his head, his smile mocking, his eyes blazing with fury. The prince may have told you my name, he snarls, but I do not accept your definition. You do not have the power. Slowly, very slowly, Mott begins to move, creaking, inching forwards. The folder begins its journey to the trolley once more. I, I can take the trolley, move it somewhere that they can't infect anything else, Sarah says, watching helplessly. Perhaps, says Mott, but what about the next time? And the next? The only way to stop me is to destroy me, and you cannot do that. For all Mott's bravado, he still moves glacially, with a cold inevitability. Sarah gasps. I can. Do not be ridiculous, girl Sarah. Sarah presses the button on her phone, and there is a sound effect like a camera shutter. What, what are you doing? Sarah smiles grimly. I'm defining you defining you so that all the world knows precisely what you are and what you are capable of. Her thumb blurs over the on-screen keyboard. Don't worry, I'm just tagging you. There. Done. Crackpot Matt thinks he can do magic, but really, really, really can't. LOL. With Sarah Fletcher. I don't have so many friends on Facebook, but that's not the point, is it? I've defined you, Matt catalogued, mapped, and defined you all for the world to see. Matt blinks at her owlishly. I can too. I have a magic pen, and a magic list, and a magic folder of doom. Sarah shakes her head, relief and horror at what she's done flooding her. No, Matt, you have my pen, and my list, and I don't know what you have there, but it's not important. It's nothing special. Matt stares at the folder for a moment. Nothing... special? He drops the folder. Sarah breathes a sigh of relief. I don't know what you've done to me, girl Sarah, but I shall return to the wild and plot my revenge. When it comes, it will be... terrible. With that, he turns and dives for the crack in the wall, but his size and nature cannot change, do not change, and he cannot return that way. Instead, he collides heavily with the wall and all but knocks himself out. In a place we named London, there stands a hospital. How long it has stood there is a difficult thing to say, as it is a hospital built upon a hospital, built in turn around a hospital. Some of it is very new and gleaming white, but some is older, creating offices that were once tiny cramped wards, each with their own fireplace long since bricked up. In one room, near the top of the building, is a bed with a man in it. The man is called Matt, but does not remember his last name. The nurses are kind to him, but they do keep a close eye on him, for he is a little... odd. Occasionally he claims to be an elf or a wizard or something of that nature, but his meds keep him calm. That and a daily dose of countdown. The numbers round is his favourite. The girl called Sarah to her friends, but in fact called Gertrude Constance Zara Eugenia Fletcher, no longer works there. When she left, she took nothing but a single brown folder. And so ends The Lords of Negative Space. I'm actually rather proud of that. It's the first thing I've finished in, well, it feels like quite a long time, in fact. It's not perfect. I think when I come to write draft two of it, and I think I probably will, there are three things that I would actually revisit. Uh, firstly, Caldicus Mott, I want to make more of his abilities, and early on, I originally wrote a section, I've deleted it for this draft, uh, where he looks at the medical notes and interprets them and disagrees with what the consultant's written there. I just want to make it a little bit more clearer that Mott really does understand and can manipulate and change what he's looking at there. 
And I think that would foreshadow it a little bit more. The second thing that I want to revisit, I don't think I really make it clear enough why Caldicus goes to the effort of dragging Sarah all the way to the Conclave. There is a reason. In my mind, it's simply that he wants to get the Conclave on side. He wants to get them swept away with his plan so that when he actually later kind of tries to bring numbers, the power of numbers, to the Fae, uh, they will all be kind of with him. And to do that, he had to get a bit of human baiting. That is in the text. Uh, and that's why Sarah is at the Conclave before Caldicus goes off to do his dastardly plan. Without saying that, it just seems a little bit pointless to drag her all that way, so I do need to put that in there somewhere. The other thing, the final thing that I would probably look at again, I'm a little bit worried, you may disagree, that I lay it on a little bit too thick in the final quarter. Uh, all the unknown and unknowable, defined and undefined, it's important, that's what the story's about, after all, the, the definition, uh, the way the words are used. But I think, I think perhaps I'd take it back just a notch uh, without being quite so... I think I'd probably need a little more subtext and a bit less actual text. Hmm. All the same, I'm very pleased with the way it came out, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I'm not going to promise that it won't be 18 months before the next podcast, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try because I really do enjoy doing them and I hope people enjoy listening to them. Uh, but for the moment, thanks for listening. If you have any feedback, any comments, anything you'd like to hear next, uh, drop me a line at the normal address, rob at storycastrob.co.uk. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening. Cheerio. Cheerio.